Welcome to episode 13 of Battle Rhythm, the Canadian podcast that tells you what you need to know about Canadian defense and security. I'm Steve Sademan, and my co-host Stephanie Von Lackey will be joining Today we're going to talk about the NATO meeting in London. Uh, we'll talk about the Canadian Defense and Security Network's uh, year ahead last week. Uh, then we'll address the holidays. What do we want for Christmas? What do we think that the Canadian Defense and Security Committee want for Christmas? Uh, address the year's highlights and lowlights before moving on to interviewing Thomas Hughes about his work on NATO and then Stephanie Hoffman's discussion with me last summer on European security, which is newly relevant thanks to the London meeting. We'll conclude with my peeve about NATO's 2% discussions. Thank you very much. Stephanie, so you're in Europe. I guess you were at present when uh, Donald Trump was sent to the uh, Latvian table. I was really amused <laughs> by the Saturday Night Live sketch last night uh, uh, depicting how NATO operates. What's your take on, 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 on NATO things, both on SNL and otherwise? Well, it's quite thrilling when your research topic ends up being a NATO skit. So I watched that first thing in the morning and, and shared it immediately and was quite chuffed that NATO made it onto SNL. Obviously, everyone has been talking about that that video of Trudeau snickering with other world leaders and laughing behind Trump's back. So it's been in the media every day and it's had a lot of play. You know, some people say that Trudeau should have known better. Uh, there have been mic incidents before, but I think many of us would have liked to join their happy hour circle, frankly. I've said this multiple times, but allies don't like surprises. And when you turn photo ops into press conferences and use that platform to criticize these same allies, you're disrupting the rules of traditional diplomacy. So this is fair game. But that's what I think. Yeah, I, I'm on the same point of view, which is that if you're going to call leaders semi-delinquent or slightly delinquent, I should say, which is Trump's term for Canada and for, for Trudeau, and then joke about putting Canada on a payment plan for, for what it's to spend on its military, then... It makes sense that when the leaders get together and Trump's not around, they're going to talk about him because they have this common experience that they've never experienced before, which is a leader not bound by any norms or any sense of appropriateness. And so he trashes them to their faces. So why shouldn't they sort of share their own misery of having to deal with men? What I really want to know is what Princess Anne said, because she seems more experienced and her comments are inaudible. <laughs> I have no idea what she said. I'm sort of curious as to where Merkel was while Macron and Bojo and Trudeau were, were chatting. You were there in London for the NATO leadership meeting. There was a side party for experts like ourselves. What was the mood of the room and what did you learn that we might not have seen on the media? Oh, what did I learn? Oh, I learned London can have nice weather in December. <laughs> that was surprising. <laughs> Trump is really good at controlling the media narrative during NATO meetings and summits. It's not something that's new, but it's something now that after the Brussels summit and now the uh, leaders meeting in London, you just see consistently whatever Trump says, the media latches onto, and then it becomes the driving narrative for the entirety of the meeting. So that is something that I've I've definitely noticed, and that is a difficult reality to escape. Something else maybe uh, that I'll comment on, I think the Secretary General of NATO deserves a vacation. He's had a really hard job, I think, in this environment. So not only has he had to deal with the Trump presidency, it was clear from the moment that Trump took office that he wasn't very fond of NATO. He had called NATO obsolete during his campaign. Throughout his presidency, Trump has had really harsh words for NATO as an organization and for individual allies. So from the get-go, uh, the Secretary General has tried to you know, toss a bone to Trump from time to time, uh, giving him credit for the increase in collective defense spending. But he's also had to deal with uh, with Turkey being a very difficult 
player, an obstructionist player at NATO in, in the last little while. Uh, and also, and more recently, Macron. So right ahead of the, the leaders meeting in, in London, Macron uh, had some harsh words for NATO, saying NATO was brain dead and promoting the European alternative of more strategic autonomy. So yeah, the Secretary General, I think, has had a rough couple of years trying to keep the alliance together, trying to keep this appearance of cohesion, uh, while the disagreements are playing out more and more in public. I think one of the dynamics that showed from them joking around about Trump is that Bojo spent the week or the, the several days trying to get as much distance away from Trump as possible because he's got an election in a, a few days. And being seen next to Trump is bad for domestic politics. That that speaks to a larger dynamic, which is most leaders in Europe may have a harder time cooperating with NATO because that'll be seen as cooperating with Trump and that will be punished domestically, that they'll actually compete with each other to get farther away from Trump. So that's mm-hmm. going to make Stolenberg's job, the Secretary General's job, much harder because the face of NATO is often the President of the United States. When Bush was trying to get support for the Afghanistan mission, he had a hard time because people were still uh, upset about the 2003 war, when Obama became president, it was much easier for the United States and much easier for the Secretary General at the time to get countries to change their policies and do more to loosen their restrictions, to send more troops, because Obama was popular and being seen next to Obama was a good thing. So I think that's this is going to be a problem for NATO, even even if Trump doesn't say anything, just he's so widely unpopular that's going to cause problems for anybody to cooperate with NATO. No, you're right. And not to fall into the trap of just talking about the 2%, but just getting back to defense spending. We did see some some announcements, well, first of all, by the Secretary General himself about, you know, the, the, the global tally of the increase in defense spending. We saw Germany ahead of the London meeting announcing that it will aim to get to 2% by the early 2030s. Do you think... Trump does deserve credit with all of his naming and shaming for the increases in defense spending that we're seeing. I don't know. I mean, the, the problem is you've got two things going on at the same time, which is you have Putin becoming increasingly aggressive, who's uh, in 14 Crimea, and that definitely reversed the trends in defense spending in Europe where everybody had been cutting budgets and that changed even before Trump became president. And Germany, I think, has faced a lot of pressure, not just from Trump, but from everybody, because it has real limits on what it can do militarily, and yet it wants to be a leader within Europe. So I'm not sure how much of this is Trump. I do think some of it is probably now a little bit of Trump. But I think it's there's, I think another American president might have gotten as much or more uh, improved spending. I mean, for me, the challenge is, and you can, you can answer this question since you were there, does NATO have a purpose besides talking about burden sharing? What else do they talk about in London, did they agree to anything to deal with China or any, or Russia or anything else that is actually NATO's day job rather than this sort of circus of how to meet an input measure of spending? Well, China was on the agenda for the first time, so I don't think that we would have seen any remarkable statement on a new NATO policy towards China. I do think it's wise, though, when you are anticipating a shift in the international system with the rise of China, that allies coordinate on their strategies for how to you know, counter that new environment. On Russia, I think the allies deeply disagree on on how to handle uh, the Russian challenge. I mean, it's no secret that Macron is keen for a rapprochement, for a thawing of relations with Russia, while other countries uh, that are closer to to Russia geographically, like the Baltic states and and Poland, are very reluctant. Uh, They want more pressure than dialogue. But I agree with you when we think about the increase in in defense spending, the collective increase in defense spending, we can look to the perceived Russian threat. We can look to countries wanting to please Trump. Or we can uh, also explain that by the fact that some countries, maybe Germany and France, see the U.S. to be less reliable. And so it's difficult to tell what is really driving this collective increase, and it really could be all three. Was there anything else that came out of London that you that we didn't really hear about because of the Trumpness of it all? Maybe arms control. I know arms control is certainly a topic of discussion. Uh, we saw with the withdrawal of the INF treaty that the only remaining arms control treaty right now is the, the New START treaty. And uh, Putin has now uh, repeatedly talked about just automatically extending the, the treaty. But it seems that the United States and under Trump's presidency, there's a real push to include China uh, in these talks and make this a multilateral treaty. So when Putin is starting to sound like the voice of reason, uh, you know things aren't going well. I would have liked to see more on what NATO will do to re-engage uh, 
with the dialogue vis-a-vis uh, -vis Russia, uh, but we didn't get a lot of, of details on that, unfortunately. Yeah, I guess I didn't get my, my Winterfest holiday present, which would have been a, a summit that focused on the substance of what NATO is supposed to be doing rather than the 2% circus. So what are you looking for, for for Christmas or what are you shopping for while you're wandering around Europe for the holidays? Uh, I'm not doing much shopping, to be honest. I'm looking forward to just catching up on sleep. <laughs> I'm talking <laughs> sleeping for 12 hours straight. Uh, I also want a digital detox uh, over the holidays. So it's nice that uh, we're, we're taping our second to, to last episode. And taking a digital detox is the right thing to do when you're in academia over the, the Christmas holidays because you get way fewer emails than the rest of the year. So I, I definitely um, am going to use that time to take a real break and to feel refreshed for when I go back into the classroom for the first time after my sabbatical on January 6th. What about you? Well, I, I, I wish I could get a sabbatical for, for the holidays. No, I, I, uh, what am I looking forward to? Well, I'm, I'm going to see my daughter twice for the, for, uh, sorry, for American Thanksgiving. I'm going to see her again for Christmas. So she lives out on the other side of the country. So it'll be nice to see her uh, a little bit more. And I'll get to see my, my blonde nieces. Now they've seen my brunette nieces. Uh, that's the way I sort of divide them up. Otherwise, for the holidays, what am I, what I really want? Well, I, I want a, a new flashy TV uh, with a, a flashy sound bar so that way I can listen to The Mandalorian in full Star Wars sound as well as so I can see Baby Yoda in, in his very wonderful cuteness in a bigger, uh, clearer screen. That's, those uh, are uh, expensive uh, what... asks. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, well, we'll see how it goes. Uh, what does Canada want for Christmas? What do you think that either the the country or the CAF, the uh, Canadian Forces, should should get for the holiday? What are they hoping Santa delivers them? I think Canada wants a guarantee it will not be featured on Saturday Night Live in 2020. <laughs> and I'll say the CAF is not into Christmas shopping this year after soft equipment appeared online uh, too soon. Too <laughs> it's soon. amazing what you can find on eBay these days, isn't it? Yeah, the Cants Off has gotten in trouble for apparently having a... Uh, not so well guarded armories and these these equipment have been walking off uh, and being sold on eBay. It's been a bit of a controversy. I guess uh, the thing Canada really wants is is to have the hostages returned from China and, and perhaps less bullying in general from the Chinese, from from Trump, from the Saudis. In terms of the CAF, you know, the one of the news stories that came out of this week was that we're not spending the money that was allocated because we don't have enough procurement staff. So I think the CAF would just like to have their kit under the tree as opposed to having to go through treasury board and through all these procedures to get their stuff. And so if they woke up one morning and had the next generation of, of fighter aircraft without having to go through another competition, I think they'd be very thankful for that. And I know that you had the year ahead conference uh, while I was in London. And let me ask you to reflect back on the year we've just had and to ask you what some of the highlights might have been um, for you, for Canada, for D&D &D and the Canadian Armed Forces, perhaps. Sure. Well, the personal highlight was that we got the Canadian Defense and Security Network funded. That was getting that grant uh, through the process and getting uh, us funded for seven years is a huge victory, not just for me, but for, for you and for all the folks who worked really hard on it. It allowed me to hire a great team, including one of your former students, Jeffrey Rice, and uh, somebody here that was working at Nipsey, and, uh, Melissa Jennings, who's our podcast producer, that we started this podcast. I, it forces you to talk to me every two weeks, which is a pleasure for me. I don't know if it's good for you, but I've been really enjoying it. So, I guess that that the whole launch of the CDSN has been a uh, the highlight for me this year. I think for Canada, the highlight was something that didn't happen, was that the election went off without any major hacking stories, that there wasn't any controversies about the Russians or the Ch And I guess for the D&D &D and the CAF, I think that, you know, I'm sure they're not partisan, but the fact that they not, don't have a party that came into power promising deficit cutting is probably a good thing for them. I think also the fact that the Mali mission didn't really provide much news was probably a uh, a good thing. What are the highlights for you and what do you think were the highlights for Canada and, and uh, mm. the defense and security community? Well, I, I'm not trying to flatter you, but uh, starting this podcast has been a, a highlight for me this year. A lot of people have come forward sharing their views on security and defense, and I've enjoyed hearing people's ideas for the podcast. And it's also an icebreaker with students. Students often mention it to me, so I enjoy these impromptu conversations I have with folks. The highlight for the CAF, I think maybe starting the NATO mission in, in Iraq. I really believe Canada was the right candidate for the job, especially when you consider the alternatives like
like Turkey. So if there's an opportunity for Canada to really step up in the context of NATO, I think this was an appropriate role for it, not too demanding of a mission, uh, but one where Canada could really play that traditional role of mediating different interests. And it was seen as as also a trustworthy partner by the Iraqi government. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how the mission evolves under General Jenny Carignan. Now she just took over for the mission from General Fortin. And we talked about how the protests in Baghdad and elsewhere may have impacted the mission. So I know we will continue to monitor this closely on the podcast. What about the lowlights? What about the lowlights? Um, well, we had this year ahead conference this week, which was actually a highlight. It was a great conference. Uh, Jeff did a great job of organizing it. But the first two theme panels were focused on climate change and right-wing extremism. That was a pretty depressing combo because we were trying to figure out which one presented us with worse news. Then I think the lowlights around the world has been that I think 2019 was really the year that climate change was not just something that we were thinking about and worrying about, but something that was happening. And then people were starting to realize that the damage is being done right now. And uh, I think that the election showed that domestic politics is going to get in the way of making major dents in this, not just here, but everywhere else, because it's asking people to make major changes in the way they do things, pay more for their energy, convert, their, their change their habits and all the rest of it. So that, that was uh, definitely a low light. And the right-wing extremism, uh, we've seen a lot of violence this year. And one of the challenges that CAF has had has been they've been identifying people that are right-wing extremists in the military. And the question is what to do about them. But I don't think the military figured out yet what to do with them. Uh, I don't think just telling them, you know, don't do it and go back to being in the military is a great idea. So we'll see, I think, in 2020, more pressure on the CAF to figure out ways to, to deal with this this threat. So I think that's that, those are the, uh, the big uh, lowlights of the year for Canada. Myself, it was a pretty darn good year. I did have some pushback from uh, a graduate student uh, that was a bit challenging towards the end of the year, but uh, I can't get into that online. Overall, I, I got to say it was a pretty good year for me, but I, I do see that, that there are some real real problems uh, facing Canada and the world that are getting worse rather than better, and I, I see the impediments to those. So what depressed you about this year? What were the lowlights that you faced? Probably starting this podcast. No, I'm just kidding. I <laughs> <laughs> No, no, but I, I'm like you. I find it hard to remain optimistic about where the world is at. Uh, after the U.S. ripped up the nuclear deal, we're now in a situation where Iran is in the news for its missiles and for using force against civilians during several weeks of protests. In Afghanistan, there are almost daily attacks by the Taliban against Afghan security forces and civilians. So when you read the Afghan casualty reports that are compiled monthly by the New York Times, it's just hard to see how the Taliban can be seen as a negotiation partner. In a eventual peace talks, uh, the United States was trying to broker these this year, and I just don't see that happening. Kim Jong-un and Trump are calling each other names again, so that's not encouraging either. Trump called Kim Rocketman again while in London. It seems that uh, being made fun of is something both Kim Jong-un and Trump react poorly to. Uh, but, you know, you still want uh, that bilateral diplomatic relationship to go smoothly, given what's at stake. Yes, yeah, I, I probably should have done lowlights before highlights. Yeah, depressing yeah, <laughs> sorry. It's okay. It was uh, <laughs> the way things played out. The good news is we've got a couple of good interviews coming up. We've got one of your former students or current students, I guess, Thomas Hughes. Yes, exactly. Uh, he's our, our emergency scholar interview. And then one of the last uh, interviews uh, from the Paris conference I went to last summer. Talk about highlights. I did go to have uh, Lisbon, Barcelona, and Paris over the course of two weeks last summer. So that was definitely a personal highlight. Anyway, Stephanie Hoffman uh, is a scholar who works on European security, and we taped the interview last summer, but we did anticipate some of the discussions about 2%. So uh, I think it's a good interview to listen to in, in the aftermath of this particular summit because she'll provide a European perspective on on this burden sharing problem that we've been facing. Yes, and Stephanie Hoffman is a professor at the Graduate Institute in Geneva. And trained in, in the United States, so she has a good way to translate uh, European news to uh, North American ears. Looking forward to hearing uh, that interview. Uh, I'm looking forward to our next podcast where we're going to go over some of the highlights of, of, of the Battle Rhythms year and we'll play some snippets of some of the interviews uh, throughout the year that uh, I think were really interesting and provided some insights about defense and security in Canada and elsewhere. So look for that sometime between when you hear this podcast and uh, the holidays. It'll be our Winterfest present to our, our listeners, all seven of them. <laughs> Perfect. I think that's a great plan. 
All right. I look forward to talking to you one more time uh, for that podcast. And uh, I encourage the listeners to listen to, to, to uh, the interviews with Tommy Hughes and Stephanie Hoffman as they have keen insights about what's going on in the world today. And I'll, I'll talk to you soon, Stephanie. Talk to you soon. So I'm Thomas Hughes, I'm a PhD candidate at Queen's University. My research focuses primarily on military exercises in Europe and the way in which the Soviet Union, Russia and NATO have used exercises uh, to develop their security posture. So Thomas, how did you come to be interested in NATO, especially since uh, every decade or so, in a cyclical fashion, people seem to be predicting the demise of the alliance? I think NATO is a fascinating organisation because it has had to continue to evolve since its creation. We hear quite frequently that we are now in a new Cold War, but we also hear particularly from NATO that that is the wrong way to look at today's uh, security environment. And it's very tempting to to see NATO as just a security organization which is uh, defending against this massive threat coming particularly from Russia from the north. But what we see today is a collection of states all with similar but not identical security concerns. And it's, I think, a real challenge for the movers and shakers within NATO to maintain that relationship. But it's something that they do with remarkable skill and elan in most cases. And it's what makes it uh, of enduring interest because there's no single answer to what NATO is or what NATO will be. So you think NATO is here to stay? Absolutely. I think like any relationship, it needs to be worked on. I think if we are complacent and just say absolutely NATO is here to stay, then it probably won't be. But if NATO can continue to see itself as an evolving organisation with a series of partners with different needs that can be addressed in different ways, then there's no reason why NATO won't exist. And I think that there is still a need for NATO and NATO's partners still see the benefit of being in NATO. Thomas, your dissertation is on NATO and Russian military exercises. What is the purpose of those exercises? Military exercises are fascinating because they work on multiple levels, because they have multiple uh, features and multiple functions. They have a significant function in terms of signaling. And again, that happens on multiple levels. One level that we see quite frequently is about the domestic population. Exercises are a great way to demonstrate to a domestic population that a country or an organisation like NATO has their security interests at heart, that they are developing the capability to protect them and to try and instil something of a sense of, of national pride in there. What was interesting, I think, in the 1980s is that you had both the Soviet Union and NATO regularly videoing exercises and showing it in cinemas. And that rather dropped off the map in the 1990s and earlier 2000s, but it's coming back again today. We see a lot of media coverage of exercises in Russia and within NATO states, which kind of glamorizes in a way that the role of the military. So you have that signaling function, but you also have a signaling function to potential adversaries. And this is a real key one, I think, in, in how we're looking at NATO and Russian exercises today. Again, this isn't a new concept. You can go back to Frederick the Great inviting people to come and watch his exercises to try and deter them from uh, attacking. And I don't think it's quite as direct as that today, but there's certainly a sense that we can conduct exercises uh, in order to try and demonstrate to an opponent that we don't want them to act in a particular way or that further military operations are going to be futile. Similarly, particularly for NATO, you have uh, a signalling mechanism for the alliance itself. Actually, exercises are one of the few ways that NATO can bring itself together and and really demonstrate that it is capable of operating together, but also that it intends to operate together. So in that sense, it's, it's also really important for the future of NATO, I think, to continue to demonstrate that um, this military alliance is actually capable of doing what it needs to be able to do. Great, and and as you have been involved in this research, you've spent an awful lot of time counting and coding military exercises on both sides, on the NATO side and on the Russian side. Can you tell me what you have learned in terms of the state of NATO-Russia relations by studying these military exercises? 
the coding is really important. It is really important that we have a, a fulsome understanding of the exercises that Russia is conducting, the exercises that NATO is conducting, how those exercises uh, have been structured. But once we get into that point about how exercises are structured, you introduce something that's rather more difficult to code. You start to get a much more nuanced understanding of how exercises are interpreted rather than just what's going on within them. And I think we do need to be a little bit careful of doing the whole tank counting exercise with exercises. If we just look at the size of an exercise, the number of troops that are involved, the number of tanks that are there, the number of airplanes, the number of ships, however we want to see that, then we are potentially going to get a very false understanding of genuine capability in a particular scenario. I think part of the challenge that is apparent through the way in which these exercises are conducted is that NATO sees its own exercises very much as part of its deterrence and assurance function. I think that when Russia looks at the military exercises that NATO are conducting, they're seeing two things. First of all, they're seeing a genuine threat. They're seeing NATO's borders creeping as they continue to tell us. We've kind of dismissed that perspective a little bit as being somewhat ridiculous, but I think it's a fairly genuinely held position. But also, when NATO are exercising in the way that they have done it, it cuts down the strategic options for Russia. When we look at Russian exercises, on the other hand, uh, we often, again, fall into the trap of seeing these exercises as inherently aggressive. A classic example of that would be the 2017 Zapad exercise. Again, they were, they were looking particularly at a conflict in Europe. They had a lot of mechanised material there. But it would be a stretch to see that and then say we should expect Russia uh, to use that sort of operation uh, to impose costs on NATO. So we shouldn't just brush under the carpet uh, the Russian exercises and just see them as purely uh, the development of a capability that we shouldn't care about. We have to also bear in mind the threat that we perceive Russia to represent and see their exercises as uh, a way of understanding what it is that they value. In some ways even more important than that is the way that Russia in particular has engaged with the confidence and security building measures, the, the regime that kind of structures how exercises should be uh, conducted, encapsulated in the, the success of Vienna documents most recently. And Russia has been very savvy in some ways about how they have used that document. They're certainly not complying with the spirit of it. Whether they're complying with the letter of it is, is rather more difficult to tell. By saying that they have just shy of the threshold for observation of an exercise. What I think Russia are indicating is that we feel that we could thrive outside this rules-based regime. That actually you need to be careful because we may not be constrained in the same way that you are constrained. Excellent. So on the whole, with all of the research that you've done, <laughs> are you rather optimistic or pessimistic about regional security on the eastern flank? That's a, a devastatingly difficult question to answer. I, I would suggest that I am optimistic. I think that particularly if we conceive of security operations in perhaps the traditional sense, uh, the kinetic military operations, I would be immensely surprised if we saw any further uh, operations on the eastern flank um, that impose significant costs on NATO. Thomas, thank you so much. Good luck with your research and thank you for joining us today on Battle Rhythm. Not at all. Thank you very much for having me. at the Reddit Institute of International Development Studies. Thanks for joining us on Battle Rhythm. You're in the middle of a project on to save and defend the global normative ambiguity and global regional order. Who is defining it, I guess, the first question is. Well, um, in the project, we're looking into um, how the United Nations relate to regional security organizations. And here, really, we, we look broadly almost across the globe. We look at the European Union, NATO, the African Union, sub-regional organizations, the Organization of American States and what used to be UNASUR, which is slowly but surely imploding, as well as the Collective Security Treaty Organization and the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. And the, the, um, the main hook of the project is actually not order per se, even though it has it in the title, but it's really more about the global normative ambiguity. So it's the different visions of security orders that manifest themselves on the regional and sub-regional level 
and how they very like very, they have variegated relationships with the United Nations. And so it's much more about ordering than an order that has to be defended because the understanding here is that order is constantly being formulated and reformulated. Well, that's really interesting because uh, in Canada we've been having much of this debate about the state of the 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 rules based international order, where Canada identifies itself as being one of the defenders of that, but takes for granted, I think, its regional order, which is NORAD. We're in the United States, occasionally working with Mexico, but all that has become shaken and stirred by, by who the president of the United States is these days. With all these different ones around the world, Trump is less important for most of these. I guess, is that fair to say, or is it that he's still shaking the snow globe for everybody? He's shaking the globe differently for everybody. So I think the, the observation is that there are different dimensions that, in which he has either a way in or not so easy a way in, into these different regions, right? If we look, for example, at the African Union, um, the U.S. just blocked, actually, a funding mechanism by which the U.N. could pay um, African Union peace operations or African peace fund. Instead, what the U.S. wants to do is do this bilaterally, right? So the U.S. is looking, for example, for much stronger levers to push for its agenda on the African agenda than it, it, it would have done via the multilateral route. And this is something that Trump can do with the African continent and something he tries and uh, more or less successfully with the European continent. But I mean, what we can see now, at least within the UN, is the UN Security Council is rather blocked on various issues. China, Russia and the US don't agree on, on, on many things. And so what happens more is formulations on the regional level. Well, let's move to Europe, uh, an area that you and I both know fairly well from our previous work. One of the key questions has always been, we want the European Union and the Europeans to take more responsibility, but then as from an American perspective, we're always afraid that they, if they do so, they'll subtract from NATO, that the United States would lose influence. What's your approach to that, given your larger comparative uh, project, and also then how are things going these days with all the mess that's going on? No, I mean, so I, I've been actually working on this issue for a little while because I was an internet NATO in the year 2000 mm -hmm. when, um, well, the then established ESDP met with the still existing Western European Union and NATO. And I found it very fascinating how that many ambassadors all wanted to speak up, even though many of them were representing the same country. So, I mean, I, I, my take always was what a messy situation they have put themselves in. And, and then we tend to forget that at the same time, in NATO at the time, they tried to create this European security defense identity, ESDI, that more or less never came to fruition mm -hmm. because the U.S. didn't want something that happens outside of the NATO framework. For them, the most they could envisage was like separable but not separate, right? So that was always um, the credo, and, and they were trying to push for an organization that they had the final say over it. Now that the Europeans have created what they call the common security and defense policy, I mean, in true European Union fashion, they change acronyms every 10 years. This causes me to lose track of this stuff fairly quickly. <laughs> yes, yeah, sorry. So now, now we have something called the, Euro the Common Security and Defense yeah. Policy, CSDP. And uh, this has received lots of attention as of late because ever since Brexit or the potential Brexit is on the table, especially France and Germany have pushed for more secure and defense integration within the European Union. There's something called the European Defense Fund, that there's also something that now, like there was a sleeping beauty called PESCO, the Permanent Structured Cooperation, that yeah. now awakened, just to say there's plenty of structures that are being built right now based on which European defense industry can be funded for European defense projects. And ah. this is something the U.S. doesn't like at all. So it's super interesting to observe how Trump is actually pushing Europeans to spend more in their defense spending. But when it comes to spending more on European things and not American military hardware, suddenly the European Union receives a letter from the Trump administration saying, but this entire scheme has to be open to U.S. defense contractors as well. You cannot um, close your markets to us. So there, there's lots of tension between both sides. Where I stand, if we look into the future, it's really hard to say how the EU and the US will relate. So, I mean, having an organization that actually is more capable to um, not only plan for, but then also implement operations that it deems necessary, that would be a good thing. Well, that's really interesting because when we look at it from a North Atlantic perspective, from an American or even Canadian perspective, we, we forget that there's sort of two different things going on here. One is that there's a desire for the Europeans to have a defense industry that, that they can rely upon that 
defense industry, I'm sure, is lobbying for these kinds of cooperative mechanisms. At the same time, the question then is, is once you buy the stuff, can you actually use it together? So let's, let's take these two things separately for a second. How important is the European defense lobby in put, trying to push for these common mm -hmm. schemes? From all I've seen, it's not my research area. It has already, I mean, we have these Airbus, for example, initiatives, um, the A400M, etc. I mean, this industry has already merged, has tried to, to, to become more competitive on the market and is pushing its governments in particular, again, France and Germany, but also to a certain degree, the UK, Spain, to push for a more European agenda. Yeah, so I mean, these are actors that one has to account for, but one would hope that the government still also thinks independently of these kind of interests. Maybe. Uh, I mean, when, and from the Canadian perspective, we, we end up getting driven very much by the interests of, of Bombardier, for instance. So when Bombardier got into a fight with Boeing, that, I think, pretty much killed Boeing's <laughs> chance of selling the Super Hornet to Canada. There's still, still no competition, but I, I can't imagine this government, given how sour they are in Boeing, to, to go along with that. But here you can see, for example, in Europe, I mean, we produce certain... Uh, military hardware and it's being sold uh, mainly to Europeans but I mean as much as the F-35 etc has been sold to various um, European NATO allies right I mean so it is in that sense more fragmented still I mean 28 EU member states to this point um, they're buying European and American. Well and it's interesting that again in the larger debate that we've had over two percent which is generally I think a stupid metric it seems that Trump's fixations are towards things like his mercantilist tendencies, which is everybody should buy beyond American. But that isn't what the smart defense initiative, if we remember that thing a long ago was. I mean, the idea of having Europeans cooperate on buying stuff together, building stuff together, was one of the ways in which smart defense, the idea that we would spend more efficiently, would work out. And I guess it's, you know, smart defense has been dead for quite some time. Yes. We're not there. <laughs> We're not there. Sure. Yeah, in fact, it's funny because Steffi and I had a paper that we never published about why smart defense would die. And now it should be changed to a postmortem, I suppose. You're also working on internationalizations and cybersecurity. Doing yeah, that. there's one paper in the making. And what, what are you looking at there? So this is with um, a friend and colleague at the European, European Union Institute for Security Studies, Patrick Pavlak, who is the cyber expert, where we're looking mm -hmm. into how different actors right now are trying to position themselves in this emerging policy field mm -hmm. with different stakes and with different preferences as to where they actually um, would like to discuss these issues, right? So we have the US, who's very much interested in a multi-stakeholder approach, keeping um, cyber with private actors that are all American-based. We have Russia that wants to have an intergovernmental approach and is like seeking out the ITU to do this, right? Where it has a more dominant uh, position and it's actually trying to convince African states to push for, along with this. And then we have China, who yet again has another intergovernmental approach. And so in this paper that will slowly Patrick, if you hear this, slowly writing. <laughs> We're trying to figure out, yes, exactly. I mean, what are the stakes for these different actors? And why do they choose just different venues, right? I mean, it's just based on, on an observation that has driven most of my research, that most policy domains that we see today are over-institutionalized, right? I mean, we can think of so many different issue areas where different international organizations think they're responsible for it. Now that we create more and more international organizations or the scope of international organizations is expanding, we also have to find mechanisms of how to coordinate if that's in our interest. Or, I mean, as maybe the Russians, the US and the Chinese show at the moment, coordination is actually not something that they're interested in. Well, I was going to say that, that if you think that things are over-institutionalized, you must be happy these days with the various actors seeking to go around breaking all the different international organizations. Well, they're breaking them and recreating new ones too, right? I mean, they're renegotiating uh, agreements that existed before, right, NAFTA. Or, I mean, if Brexit is on the table, if it's really going to happen, which according to my friends is less and less likely, but... Who am I to judge? But um, <laughs> if we look at this already, like there are different informal initiatives that have been created to kind of compensate for this. So, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure we might see, I mean, if we look at the overall trend, what we see is, yes, international organizations have proliferated enormously and now the numbers are stagnating. But if we look at all the informal and transgovernmental networks that have been emerging around it, those are still skyrocketing up. So, I mean, um, there is much multilateralism happening in different ways and forms. And it seems like a lot of multilateralism is all aimed at subverting other forms of multilateralism. At least certain actors use them for these purposes, right? And I think it could, can go both ways, right? I mean, we can have informal initiatives that support formal organizations, and then the other, on the other hand, also some 
that don't work. I mean, arguably, many of the coalitions of the willing that the U.S. has been pushing for over the years are also happening because NATO exists, right? The interoperability and the knowledge of different militaries that exist help create these platforms that are more ad hoc uh, to then go and intervene somewhere. So, I mean, there's what, what, what could argue the formal and the informal do mm. help one another, even though politically there's lots of outcry because the formal organization should be used and there are various reasons that it's not always the best solution. But then there are other informal agreements exactly where they compete with the formal organization. Uh, what you just said resonates with me because when I spent uh, some a year in the Pentagon, one of the big things we did that year was organize a Quint meeting. And the Quint you won't see in any formal organization, but it was the five major force contributors to the Balkan effort. So it was UK, US, France, Germany and Italy. And so they set the agenda for the NATO efforts because there was an idea to try to harmonize what was going on between Bosnia, Kosovo, and Macedonia at the time. And the Quint was just this thing that was really mostly a British scheme to get what they wanted. But in the end, it, it's hard to get a meeting where you're bringing 20 people together, 20, organiz 20 countries together. And so there's always going to be some sort of table setting at the outset by the most interested people with the most inter common interests, I suppose. Exactly. And I mean, we can see this both in the EU and NATO, right? I mean, we have two organizations who are at least to a certain degree overlap because they do crisis management and the cooperation doesn't work always so well. But now what has ha happened, given that many member states, um, is that different kind of informal groupings have formed that help smaller states who have a hard time sometimes finding their voice in these organizations to coordinate beforehand and then go to EU and NATO meetings to do so, for example, right? So we have these kind of formations or we have formations like there used to be the Weimar Triangle or the Visegrad group. So mm -hmm. all of these, like either one big country, say Germany and Germany or France, also trying to cooperate and coordinate with um, Eastern European countries who were about to join the European Union and NATO and help coordinate informally or Visegrad, like again, smaller countries who, who already have like a common position when they come into these bigger meetings. And this is not really to, to sub word or like... Uh, create a revolution within these organizations, but really to, to, to uh, fulfill the mandate that they signed up for. Which gets to a bigger question about international organizations, which is sort of deciding what their mandates are. And from a North Atlantic perspective, when we see debates at, in NATO between those who care about the Eastern Front and those who care about the Southern Front, those from North America look at that and, and ponder, what is the Southern Front? I'm curious as to your take on this. Is, is, is this difference between the, the concerns about Russia versus the concerns about essentially refugees, migrants, is that really going to keep blocking NATO or is it something that is that they're going to be able to finesse in time? Where do you see that particular division going? So what I, I see exactly, I mean, there are these different fronts and, and there's not even yet another front, right? Because crisis management and cooperative security are two pillars that NATO subscribe to in the strategic concepts that, that don't define fronts, but also missions and mandates that NATO should actually fulfill. So we have these two um, pillars of NATO and then, yeah, something that... Uh, Eastern European member states are pushing for much more deterrence kind of policy for NATO and then the southern Euro um, NATO member states really trying to push NATO to, to have an agenda in migration that NATO actually didn't have, right? And I think this one will be the hard sell still because NATO is a military defense alliance who has moved into security issues and there's a huge literature warning about the militarization of migration mm -hmm. and it, that's what NATO is currently engaging in together with the European Union which is also active in the Mediterranean Sea we should not forget right and this coordination doesn't happen always smoothly so um, I think the, the the southern front so to speak is a much harder sell um, for NATO but I, I mean they're already active they're already patrolling so in a way, they found a buy-in and certain member states are willing to at least buy this agenda versus the deterrence agenda. I think more or less everyone is on board. I mean, the Southern European countries just care less about it, but they know this has been a mission of NATO for forever. And um, Europe, Eastern European member states, I think, have made their case very clear of what they think Russia to be and, and, and want a strong commitment, but in particular from the US and the US was willing to do so. To a certain degree. And I guess one of the questions is, can't they need a walk and chew gum at the same time? That there isn't the same kind of military hardware needed for whatever is going on in the Southern Front that is going on in the Eastern Front. And so they could do both. And so it seems strange that the conversation as far has been about divisions about, as opposed to, well, we'll do this for you if you do this for us, that there might be more of a trade-off or, or accommodations made as long as we can agree not to, you know, 
blow up migrant ship, ships. I mean, I mean, I don't know if that's what the folks in Southern Europe are asking for, because that would be a different kind of thing that people can't agree to. No, they're not asking for this. But I think it's also, I mean, this, this discussion also exists within the European Union, right? Mm. Again, I mean, Frontex, the European Union, has sent out an operation in the Mediterranean Sea also to patrol the naval borders, uh, the maritime borders, sorry. But, um, so it's not like this is the only organization who can do it, but... NATO is what it is. It's an organization where there's one very strong member state, and that is the U.S., and you want the U.S.'s attention for your concerns. So this is more how I would interpret this, this kind of fight over what NATO should do. It's not we can do one or the other, but we would like the U.S. to be involved in both, and we want to feel like this transatlantic link with the U.S. is important. Do people really want the U.S. involved with Trump trumping around these days? Well, I mean, we didn't have a summit this year to, to celebrate this, the anniversary because they didn't want to have Trump making a mess of it, right? So maybe leaving the United States out of certain things is a survival strategy or a management strategy? I think in Europe, people, especially in the security and defense world, people differentiate between Trump and the U.S. military. And so, I mean, yes, Trump is one thing, and it's, it's still a recent phenomenon, right, relatively mm -hmm. speaking. I mean, the refugee, the so-called, I mean, I, I'm using this term now too, but um, the humanitarian crisis that has led to lots of refugees coming towards uh, Europe is older than, than Trump hasn't been voted to power. So, I mean, this attention for, for U.S. power has existed before Trump. And, and then again, I really, I would insist that, yes, the political... Um, leadership in the White House at the moment is maybe something that causes friction on the European continent. But um, the military establishment and also Congress, I mean, Congress has made sure that European allies know that they at least are behind the NATO alliance. And, and hence, that I think that the wish to, to have the U.S.'s attention is not, is not vanishing in this, in this regard. And I guess I find that kind of problematic because Congress does not show up and give orders to the ambassador at the North Atlanta Council that if ever anything happened, there's nobody between Trump and the U.S. ambassador at NATO. Uh, one of the things that people, you obviously understand this very well, but a lot of people don't understand, there's nothing automatic about NATO that if there's an attack, it only counts if NATO agrees it counts. And so the United States could prevent a consensus from developing. No, completely right. I mean, Article 5 was formulated so weakly because of the U.S. at the time, <laughs> right? I mean, they insisted, yeah, an attack against one is an attack against all. And commitment shows we can just have a political speech saying we condemn this attack, and that is your Article 5 contribution, right? That, that's what's, what's possible, exactly. And so, I mean, this varies a lot. But what I was thinking more is that because, especially when he came to power, um, Trump really doubted, or like in his various speeches, uh, made people doubt about the U.S. commitment to NATO in the sense of will they stay within NATO, right? Yeah, I, I doubt this, that. And this something cannot happen without the agreement of Congress, as far as I know. At least Congress was signaling that they would not sign, um, should such a bill come to their, uh, the Senate said they will not sign the termination of this international treaty. Yes, but again, there's all kinds of things the president can do. And, and so I've always found the Europeans relying on Congress and relying on Jim Mattis and other people will come by and reassure people as, as partly wishful thinking as opposed to anything else because we've what we've seen the past few years is that the institutions rely on things like shame and norms and this government, in my mind, lacks any sense of shame. But uh, at the same time, they're still in NATO, right? At the same time, it's this government who actually has moved a few U.S. soldiers uh, towards the Poland, etc. So, I mean... Uh, if you look at the actions, I'm not saying yep. it's it's uh, it's the rosiest of days yeah. for the transatlantic <laughs> relationship, but uh, things are happening where at least some NATO allies on the European continent feel hurt. That's that's good, and and I probably am too ruthlessly pessimistic about things. I still don't understand why the United States is increasing its commitment to NATO at a time where the president keeps on threatening to pull out based on his misunderstanding of what two percent means, but. Uh, I really appreciate that. By way of conclusion, tell us what your current work out there is that you want people to, to find, the, your latest thing, or do you have a book to plug? Uh, no book to plug. I mean, you already mentioned one of my research projects, uh, which looks more at the, the di dynamics between the global organization, the UN, and crisis management, and regional security organizations. There's just another research project that might be interesting to talk about one day. With a consortium of, of 14 people, we're currently... Um, examining 
a public opinion uh, on European security and defense matters. And we're trying to match this with uh, extensive interviews across European national capitals and the EU and NATO to see in a way how the public understands what European security leads do and vice versa, and whether there are any mechanisms of, of shaping and influencing the policy agenda that goes both ways. Well, that's fantastic because I, I don't think there's enough comparative work on things like that. Uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us about Rhythm. Thank you so much for having me. These days, nothing drives me crazier than any discussion of NATO's 2%. For a couple of reasons. First of all, obviously, Donald Trump misunderstands it. He thinks that countries owe the United States or NATO for money they didn't pay in previous years when the basic idea of 2% is this. NATO set in 2014 a goal that by 2024, each country would spend roughly 2% of their gross domestic product on defense. They would spend 2% on their military so that way it was sufficiently ready to deal with the Russians and other threats. And when they fall short, it doesn't mean that they owe money to NATO. It means that their military is less capable than it otherwise would be. So that's the first part. The second part that drives me crazy is this is an input measure. That is, it's throwing money at the military, which may be well spent, may be poorly spent. But it says little about capability. One way to illustrate this is that Greece is one of the top performers by the 2% measure. But Greece is a lousy ally. They spend most of their money on personnel, which it might mean that it's more of a welfare program than a military program. And their military is mostly aimed at Turkey, another NATO ally, and Greece rarely shows up in any significant way to any NATO effort. For much of the mission in Afghanistan, they sent about 20 people. This measure makes Greece look like a good ally, and it makes it look, Greece look like a better ally when its economy tanks, because again, it's 2% of GDP, so when GDP goes down, the contribution seems to go up. And the thing is this, NATO's day job is not discussing burden sharing. NATO's day job is to discuss and deal with threats from Russia, from China, from terrorists, uh, dealing with instability nearby that uh, generate migrants that cause much domestic political troubles for the Europeans. There's all kinds of problems NATO should be handling, and it's been distracted for the past three years by this burden sharing problem. The basic reality of any alliance, as The Economist will tell you, is there'll always be uneven burden sharing. The United States is not committed to the defense of Europe for charity for altruism, it's there for American interests. The, the United States would rather have stability in Europe for its own economy and would rather not fight wars in Europe after the Europeans start wars. That was one of the lessons from World War I and World War II. Better to prevent a war than to intervene late in a war. This whole discussion is a way to bash the allies to appeal to domestic political audiences and because Trump has a misbegotten idea about how alliances work. But the reality is NATO has fulfilled its mission for exactly 70 years now, and it's a good bet for the United States. It's a great investment for the United States. It's a great investment for the Allies. And while it is not perfect, uh, the same can be said for the alliance that Churchill said for democracies, which is it's the worst form of multilateral cooperation, except for all the others. So that's my P for the week. This is the second to last podcast of 2019. Next week, we will release an episode that will be the greatest hits where Steph and I will listen to and talk about some of the best parts of our podcast from our first year of podcasting. We'd like to hear your questions and your comments. And so please send them to us at Twitter address at CDSNRCDS or email them to CDSN.RCDS at Outlook.com. Thank you.